0: In 2009, a reality TV show launched, and it quickly climbed to the very tops of the ratings, and it was called, and still exists today, Hoarders. Uh, Hoarders is, a, as I said, a reality TV show which showcases uh, people who simply are unable to let things go. In other words, people who are just not able to throw anything away or donate, they just can't do it, they can't let anything go. And so what happens for the really extreme cases is that over time their houses just fill with, with junk. And they're unable to even move and walk around their house. And so people were just captivated by this show. They like to look in at the lives of hoarders. Uh, what made me think of this is that you could really think of our passage today as Paul commending us not to be hoarders but of a different kind. Paul's not going to talk about material hoarding today, but spiritual hoarding. Paul is going to call us today not to be spiritual hoarders. Would you open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four, verses seventeen through twenty four? Ephesians four, seventeen through twenty four. When you've gotten there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. What we just read is a general call to holiness. Right, you could sum up what we just read as a general call to holiness. Paul has called us to be holy. Next week, we're going to see a very specific call to holiness where he's going to actually give us very practical things that we should be doing and things we should not be doing. So it's going to be very specific next week. But this week, he's kept it general. He has generally called us to live like Christians, to be holy. But the way that he puts it, at least at the beginning of the passage, is by way of comparison. He calls us to be holy. He calls us to, to, to honor God with our lives. And how do we know we're doing that? Well, one of the ways that Paul essentially gives us here is we can do that by comparing our lives to the unbelieving world. Right? That's what he says in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of of their minds. Paul is telling us that we are not to live or look like non-Christians. Christians should not take on the practices and customs and lifestyles of the unbelieving world. Uh, This is a common theme, by the way, for Paul. This idea of worldliness, of being separated from the world, of being conformed to Christ, not from the world. For example, I have on the screen, if we can turn to Romans. You don't have to turn there in your your Bibles. I have it for you. Uh, Look at Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So we are not to live like the world. We are to be conformed to Christ, not to the world. And so what this means for us is that we must relinquish the natural fear that each and every one of us has for being weird. Christians are far too often paralyzed to do what is right because of how their neighbors might think of them. We are terrified of being weird. We don't want to look strict. We don't want to look legalistic. We don't want to look cultic. We don't want to look strange. We don't want to look out of touch or outdated. But according to Paul, we are supposed to be out of touch. We're supposed to be outdated. Things are going right when our unbelieving neighbors look at us and think we're strange. That's a good sign. That's not a bad sign. We're not supposed to live like the Gentiles. True holiness means we will be distinct from the world. And so in light of this, I encourage all of us, and and I truly mean it myself, I've been doing this all week. One of the benefits of sermon prep is uh, I have to think about the sermon all week. All week I have to think about it. So trust me, I am preaching to myself here. I would really encourage all all of us to spend time, not just today, but the rest of this week in some intense self-reflection. Consider what might be some of the areas in your life where you have allowed worldliness to creep in. Sometimes Christians become worldly in how we dress. We wear lewd and inappropriate clothing. Oftentimes Christians become worldly in the entertainment that we consume. We watch movies filled with nudity, blasphemy, gratuitous violence. We're entertained by music filled with foul language. Music that glorifies evil is derogatory And speaking of foul language, that's another way that I've noticed Christians can become very worldly. Typically, we keep our mouths clean at church, but what is your mouth like outside of church? Sometimes Christians can become worldly by drinking too much. Alcohol is good, and it's been given to us by God to enjoy. The Bible attests to that, the Psalms attest to that, but abusing it is not good. Not being able to control how much you're consuming, not being able to control whether you have one more drink or not is not good. That belongs to the world. Have you been abusing? Have you been drinking too much? These are just a handful of examples, not of things that I've seen in our church specifically, but just generally speaking, these are the ways in which I see Christians can become very inundated with the culture and not even realize it. And the reason it becomes so easy is because these behaviors are the very air we breathe. It's so prevalent in our culture that it's so easy just to do these things and blend in and not even know that we're a problem. We must always be on guard against not just these, but all forms of worldly living. And that is why I encourage you to identify the worldliness in your Christianity and rage a vicious assault against it. Now, if you have trouble identifying worldliness... I have a couple pointers. It's usually, most of the time, worldly living is the things that you do that you justify on the basis that everyone else does it. That, that's usually, if, if, if you say, oh, I just do it because everyone does it, that's probably worldliness. If you wear that because everyone wears it, that's probably worldliness. I listen to this music, but everyone listens to this music. That's probably worldliness. It can also be things that you do solely out of concern over the social stigma. If you're not doing it intentionally because you found value in it, or because you believe the Bible calls you to do it, but you're just afraid of how you might be perceived, not all the time, but that's probably worldliness. There's a good chance that those behaviors belong to the kingdom of the world and not to the kingdom of God. Let me just remind you, the kingdom of heaven will be filled with dorks and weirdos. The kingdom of heaven is filled with nerds. It's filled with dorks. It's filled with people who simply don't care If they don't fit in. Because we're not supposed to fit in. We used to be of the world, but we now no longer are. We are now from above. And so we cannot hoard our former way of life. When you become a Christian, your former way of life is something you need to throw away. You don't get to keep it. You don't get to hoard it. Throw it away. Get rid of your old life. Or, if you want to use Paul's metaphor, you need to take it off. Right. This is the metaphor Paul uses. Paul uses this idea of two people and we wear them like clothing. Look at with me in verse 22. He tells us in 20 and 21 that we have learned in Christ. What have we learned in Christ? Verse 22, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Paul tells us to put it off. or Your Bible might even say to take it off. Paul links our old selves to our former way of living. Sinful behavior belongs to the old person. And when you come to Christ, you're supposed to take that old person off and throw it away. It doesn't get to stay in the house anymore. It doesn't get to stay on your person anymore. You don't get to hoard it. You've got to throw it away. And when you throw the old person away, that necessarily requires throwing all of the lifestyles and habits and pleasures that were attached to that old person. So Paul's metaphor is... Take it off. Remove the old person and remove all of the behaviors that went along with that old person. He says something similar in Colossians chapter 3. Again, I have it on the screen for you. He says in Colossians 3, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Right? Take off the old person. Take off the practices. Don't hoard them. Throw them away. Get rid of them. Put on the new. Put on the new practices. In other words, the way you can think of this is uh, the, the phrase that every hoarder needs to, to bury deep within themselves is out with the old and in with the new. Right? That needs to be the motto for every hoarder. Out with the old and in with the new. And that's what Paul's message is to us spiritually today. Out with the old and in with the new. So we've looked at the out with the old part. Take off the old man. Put off the old man with its evil practices. Its deceptive practices. Take off the old man. Out with the old, but it needs to be replaced by something. We're not just merely throwing things away. We're replacing them. Out with the old, but what? In with the new. Look at verses 20 through 24. Back in Ephesians. Part of the Great Commission is not just teaching the gospel, but as Christ says, teach them all that I have commanded you. In a very real sense, you don't become a Christian by just believing the gospel. That's only the first step. You become a Christian when you take on all of Christ's life. Christians are not just those who believe the gospel. They are those who believe the gospel and put on the law of Christ, who obey all that Christ taught to his apostles. And so when Christians believe, this is why the local church is so important. This is why fellowship with fellow Christians is so important. Because a new believer, what they need almost more than anything is to be quickly catechized in what it looks like to wear Christianity. Right? They've been called to put on Christ, but if they're a brand new believer, they don't know how to do that. And that's why Paul immediately brings the Ephesians, as we read back in 20, to what they learned. You you learned of Christ, you were catechized, (laughs) you were taught, you were instructed in the gospel, you were instructed in the ways of the gospel, and you need to remember that the behaviors I'm hearing you're partaking of are inconsistent with your catechism. They're inconsistent with what you learned in Christ. They're inconsistent with the ways of Christ that you were once taught. We as Christians put on the new self. This happens in regeneration, but we then need to be catechized to learn the ways of Christ and to put in the effort to obey Him. We put on the new person and live a new life, the one that we learned from the truth of Christ. And I love the way Paul describes this new life, especially, I mean, when you compare it to the old life, he tells us that the old life is decaying, right? The old person is decaying. There's no hope, there's no end, there's no glory, it's just decay and destruction, But Christians go the other way. We are slowly progressing up to glory. Or as Paul says it in verse 24, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. What's the end goal of the new person? To be made in God's image. To be conformed to the image of Christ. To be like God. Because God is true righteousness and holiness. The world has their own concepts of righteousness and holiness. They think they're doing righteousness and holiness when they live the way they live, but that's not true righteousness and holiness. God is the standard of what is truly holy. God is the standard of what is truly righteous. And so in Christ, we now have the ability to be made like God, to become truly righteous, to become truly holy. And this is Paul's purpose in this passage. It is, a, as I said, a general call to holiness. He tells us to be out with the old, And in with the new. To put off the old man and to put on the new man. Do not live like the world, but instead to be made into the likeness of Christ. That's what this passage is about. However, while we hear Paul's exhortation to put off the old man, to put on the new man, we cannot miss why this needs to be done. Why is Paul solemnly exhorting us to do this? Remember, look at verse 17. Paul's taking this very seriously. This is a borderline oath here right? Verse 17 now this I say and testify in the Lord he didn't have to start the sentence that way this is, this is serious this matters a lot to Paul he really wants us to get this right? Why does this matter so much? And I like to explore the reasoning that Paul gives because we, what we don't ever want to look like as Christians is pure moralists what is a moralist? A moralist I like to think of the, the quintessential moralist is Santa Santa Claus We sing in one of our beloved Christmas songs, be good for goodness' sake. Right? Why should we be good according to that song? Just just because it's good. Just for the sake of goodness, you should be good. That's moralism. It's just be good, why? Just because it's good. Totally circular. Be good because it's good. That's moralism. We just come in here and we hit people on the head and say, do better. I hear that phrase all the time in the world. There are a few things that annoy me more than when I go on social media and I hear someone say, do better, do better, do better. Why? Why should I do better? How do I know I even have the power to do better? What's so important about doing better? What's the standard of better? That makes no sense. So Paul is not, trust me, he is not just coming in here and saying, you know what Ephesians, do better. That's not what he's saying. He is telling them to do better. He is doing that. But there's more here. He's going to give them reasons For why it's so important to be out with the old and in with the new. Why is it so important to not hoard our former way of life? The first reason is because it's inconsistent with who we are. It's inconsistent with who we are. Paul could not be more adamant throughout this passage that the external behavior of every single person is a reflection of who they are inside. And he's not just saying this about Christians. We're going to see in just a moment. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is true for everyone. The way you live your life is a mirror into your soul. The things you do tells the world who you are. To put it more simply, we could just repeat the words of our Lord. Every tree is known by its fruit. You don't need to know what a tree is by cutting it open and taking a piece of it and putting it under a microscope. Just look at its fruit. And I don't need to peer into your soul to see your heart. I just have to look at what you do. Paul is adamant that the way we live our lives needs to be a reflection of who we actually are. So Christians need to walk in righteousness because God has made us righteous. And unbelievers are going to walk in darkness because they are unenlightened. They are darkened. Our lives need and will be a reflection of who we are. Look at verses 17 through 18. He's going to begin to explain this by giving us first the example of unbelievers and how their lives are just merely the fruit of what they are inside. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Paul minces no words when describing the natural condition of fallen mankind. He speaks of their understanding as being totally corrupt. We in the Reformed community, we call this the noetic effects of sin. You see, your sinful condition has not just affected your body. It's not just affected your inclinations and your proclivities. It's affected the way you think. Sin rots us to the core of our being that not even our thoughts are without corruption that is why the Gentiles have futility in their minds their minds are futile their minds are powerless they are not able to see or comprehend that which is spiritually good their thinking has been corrupted by sin that is why they are alienated from everlasting life The life that God gives us, the life of God, they are alienated from God because they don't want it. And the reason they don't want it is because they don't see it as being good. And the reason they don't see it as being good is because their minds are futile. Their thinking has been corrupt. Now what has caused their thinking to be corrupt? Well Paul tells us it's from the ignorance that is within them. Verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them. So their thoughts are unable to see the goodness of God, the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of God's law. And the reason their thoughts are corrupted is because they are ignorant. Inside, deep to their core, they are ignorant of that which is spiritually good. So because they are ignorant, they therefore have corrupted thoughts and they therefore do not see the gospel as they should see it. And that's why they don't obey it. And they live lives following after their own pleasures, doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, we could ask the next question. Okay, if if their blindness or the futility of their thoughts came from their ignorance, where did that come from? Well, Paul gives us another link in that chain, and it comes from the hardness of their hearts. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Why are they blind? Why are they ignorant? Because their hearts are hardened. In other words, they don't want, they don't believe in Christianity, they don't believe in the laws of God, they don't believe in the gospel because they don't want to. They hate it. They're hardened to it. They have no desire for it. So you see how Paul links their behavior all the way back to the core of who they are? Why do the Gentiles live like this? Because they're foolish. Why are they foolish? Because they're ignorant. Why are they ignorant? Because they're hard-hearted. They live like this because their hearts are hard. Their lives are a pure reflection of who they are. They are unable to have spiritual discernment and spiritual reasoning. They are polluted in all that they do because they have stony spiritual hearts. By the way, it's passages like this one which have led us in the Reformed tradition to deny what is sort of the common pop-level understanding of free will. Unfortunately, the free will debate has really become overly simplified in our current context. It's it's actually a very complicated issue. Um, And too often it's been reduced to this idea that people will say this, uh, non-Calvinists believe in free will and Calvinists deny free will. And that's, that's actually not quite true. There's, there's some truth to that. I understand where that comes from, but that's, that's a really simplistic way of looking at it. But the reason that comes from, the reason that idea has come into being at all is because it is true that the Reformed community, our church, has, has been pretty critical of what we see as sort of the, the, the pop level understanding of, of the freedom of man or the will of man. Well, Calvinists, we do not think that the will is nearly as free as our non-Calvinist brothers and sisters typically tend to think. And I would simply say, is just begging for a little mercy here. When you read a passage like this, can you blame us? Paul does not describe natural man as some neutral, objective, open-minded, reasonable creature. Just give me the evidence and I'll follow it wherever it leads. I have the power to just love Christ at my own will and if, if you give me a good reason to, then I'll just okay, I'll love Christ and I'll follow him, I'll obey him. Rather, he describes men as blind, ignorant, and hardened. Their will is not free, it's blind. Their hearts are not free, they're hard. We Sometimes this is referred to as the doctrine of total depravity. Men are so totally depraved that sin has again affected their totality of their being. Everything is affected by sin and that includes their will. One of the, the first debates of the Protestant Reformation was a debate that took place between a Roman Catholic, a brilliant Roman Catholic scholar by the name of Erasmus. By the way, we owe in the Protestant world Erasmus a lot of credit. Uh, Erasmus was influential in why we have Bibles today. So he, he really was a brilliant and helpful man in many ways. But he was a Roman Catholic, and so obviously we have issues with some of his theology. And Martin Luther took a huge issue primarily with his understanding of man's will. He wrote a paper in response to Martin Luther called The Freedom of the Will. Martin Luther responded with a long essay, which now is one of the most popular books in the Protestant world, titled, The Bondage of the Will. Because Martin Luther's point with Erasmus is, when I read the New Testament, I do not see a free will, I see an enslaved will. I see a will that has been dead, hardened, and enslaved to sin. So again, there's a lot of nuances. Well, does that mean men are robots? And we can get into those debates. But the general position I want us to see is that I don't think the New Testament suggests to us that the will of man has, has, been, uh, has been safeguarded from the effects of the fall. Natural man, to the very core of their being, are blind, ignorant, and hardened against the gospel. And this is why, to lead to another controversial belief that we hold as a church, this is why sometimes if you were to read like a lot of Reformed literature... You might read this phrase, that regeneration precedes faith. That regeneration comes before faith. Uh, And I would say, I agree with what's being said there, but it's really not expressed very well. And the reason this can lead to a lot of confusion is because the word regeneration can mean a lot of different things. Typically, when we talk about regeneration, what we mean by that is that the Holy Spirit has come within us and transformed us and given us new life. And if that's what we mean by regeneration, then regeneration does not precede faith. Right? Because what are the consequences of that? That means you're saved before you believe in Jesus. And that's not just an error. That's a heresy. Right? You are never, ever, ever saved before your faith in Christ. Ever. But when the Reformed theologians of the past have talked about regeneration preceding faith, they're using the term regeneration in a slightly different way. And here's all they're trying to communicate. Before a person can gaze upon the gospel and enjoy it and see it and desire it, the Holy Spirit must do something with their hearts first. Because Paul is telling us here that their hearts are hardened and blind and ignorant. Let me ask you, if you met a person who was physically blind... They came to you, my eyes don't work. And you said, well, okay, I know how to fix that. And you just took them outside and said, just look at the sun. Look at the light. Just see the light. The light's not doing anything for them. They're blind. Exposing a blind person to light doesn't change them. And so our perspective is people are spiritually blind to the light of the gospel. And merely exposing them to the light doesn't change them. They can't see it. That's why we believe God must do something. He must open their eyes to see the gospel. And then when that happens and they finally see the gospel and all that it's worth, then they believe and then they're saved. We maintain that God must do something in the hearts of men, in their spirits, in order for them to believe. All we're trying to say is that the spirit was at work in you before you believed. Maybe you don't agree with that, but can we just at least agree that that's kind of, that's kind of a a cute story? Isn't that actually kind of, kind of precious? That even while you were in your hardness, and your deadness, and your ignorance, God's Spirit said, I want to do something with this person. I want to change this person. God's love and God's Spirit was active upon you even before you came to Christ. We would say God's love and God's spirit is the only reason you can come to Christ, Because before that, you were ignorant and blind and hardened. Or as Paul said in Ephesians chapter two, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were not alive, you were dead. You were not seeing, you were blind, you were not open, you were hard. And that's why, to make this to get this back on track, that is why unbelievers live the way they do. Because they're blind, they're dead. They're hard. And it gets even worse. They don't just stay in this condition. Over time, it actually gets worse. It gets worse and worse over time. God, when He saved you, did not just save you from your sin, He saved you from the devastating consequences of living a life of sin. We see that in verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What's a callus? I've been playing the acoustic guitar for a long time. My skills don't actually match how long I've been playing. I haven't been practicing as good as I should have been practicing, but I've been playing acoustic guitar for a long time. It doesn't hurt my fingers to play the guitar, but when I first was learning, it hurt my fingers a lot. When you first start pushing your sensitive little fingertips against these, these metal chords, it, it, it really actually hurts your fingers. My fingers would, would be very sore for multiple days after practicing my guitar. But you know what your body does eventually? Is the skin dies, essentially. And it calluses up. So my, the skin on my fingertips is hard and it has no feeling in it. So now, when I play the guitar, it doesn't hurt at all. Because my fingers have become calloused. I have calluses. Paul is using that as an analogy for what unbelievers do. We know that every single person has what we call a conscience. God has written His law into their hearts, so there's no escaping God's law. We see this, by the way, in Romans chapter 2, if you turn there on the screen for me. Read this verse along with me, or hear me read it. For when the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus This is an amazing verse here Paul is telling us that God in natural man has written his law on their hearts which means every man has a conscience so they don't actually have to be a christian they don't ever have, have to have read a bible once in their life to feel the guilt of sin this is why when you go to all these different cultures throughout the world, they just, in, in, in large part, it gets very different, but there's like a core of morality that people just generally understand. I think, I think it was C.S. Lewis. I've mentioned this multiple times. I need to track down the quote. I can't remember if it was him. But what he was one time observing, it's amazing how young little children under, have a very advanced concept of ethics. And he talked about, you could take little children who have never once sat through a philosophy class, They've never once listened to Aristotle or Plato and, and, and talked about the philosophy of ethics. And you can line them up at a lunch line and have one of them work his way to the front. And what's every kid in the line going to do? That's not fair. And some bright philosopher could come in the room why don't you explain the philosophy of fairness and ethics to me? I don't have a philosophy of fairness and ethics. I've never studied fairness and ethics. I just know that that's not fair. I just know it. Because God is written it in our hearts. You know stealing is wrong. You don't need a Bible to know it. You know stealing is wrong. God has made that evident to you. But what happens, says Paul, as we live our lives of rebellion and ignorance, our hearts become more and more calloused to the pain of conscience. My fingers were hurting me saying, stop, stop, don't do this. And then the callousness says, no, that doesn't hurt. I can do this. That's what our souls do. Our consciences rage war against us. Don't do this. This is wrong. This is wrong, but we continue in it. Our friends peer pressure us, and eventually we callous to it so that we can sin and never feel the guilt or consequences of it. This is why you have psychopaths, people who literally cannot feel bad for the horrors they inflict upon people. They're too calloused against the natural conscience that God has given them. This is the lives that Gentiles lead. A lives of growing in decay, growing in callousness. And and what does it cause them to do? It causes them to, verse 19, give themselves up to sensuality. And then notice what Paul says here. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It's interesting. I like the way the ESV put this. Your Bible probably translates it differently than the ESV here. But that's because here's what the Bibles are struggling to translate. The word greed is used here. And when we think of the word greed, we immediately associate it with money to be greedy for money or to be greedy for just material possessions in general but that's not how Paul is using the word greed in the Greek what is it that sin, sinners that natural man is greedy for sin itself they, they desire more and more sin what Paul is telling us about sin is it's this is an important word it's insatiable sin is insatiable what does it mean to be insatiable it means it cannot be satisfied if you have an insatiable appetite, that means you would eat, 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 and always be hungry. Paul is telling us that the hardened, callous heart is insatiable. You can never sin enough and then finally get your fill. You can never look at enough porn until you finally say, like, I don't need to look at it anymore. I'm good. You can never fornicate enough until you say, you know what, I had enough of that. I'm, I'm filled, I'm satisfied, I'm happy. There is no amount of sin that will ever satisfy you. You will sin has this it is empty calories you consume, you consume, you consume and you never get enough and so that's why unbelievers just continue to eat their fill of sin and then when their conscience raises up against them they cut it off and then they grow callous so that they can consume more and more sin and that's what they do, they consume sin and decay until they die and are judged and so here's what Paul is doing to bring this all back to the overall point why would you want to live like that? Here's what we know about unbelievers. They're dead, hardened, blind, ignorant. They're callous to their conscience. They're consuming sin and they're decaying. You have been given new life and freedom in Christ and righteousness. So why do you want to show the world that you're one of the decaying ones when you're actually one of the ones who are living? Paul is telling us, why is it so important for us to live righteous lives? Because that's who God made you. It's... Sin is inconsistent with what God has done in you. That's your motivation. Why should you not live in sin? Because that's not who you are. Let the Gentiles live in sin. That's who they are. That's not who you are in Christ. If you need motivation not to sin, you need to remember that this is simply not who you are. Christ has created a new person, so we need to walk in the newness of life. We need to show the world, I'm not who I used to be. I'm not greedy for sin anymore. Read verses 20 and 24 with me. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know what I think is the beauty the real beauty of this teaching? What I'm teaching you today is that when you think of salvation, you need to think of more than just the forgiveness of sins. When God saved you, He did a lot more than just forgive your sins. Now, I'm not trying to demean the forgiveness of sins. That by itself is a beautiful mystery I will never comprehend. The forgiveness of sins by itself makes God worthy of eternal praise. So please don't hear me demeaning it. But God is just so full of grace and love and mercy that even something like the forgiveness of sins, which he gives you in Christ, he doesn't stop there. What you're learning today is that when you come to believe in Christ, you do not merely just have your record forgiven. You are actually, literally, what we call ontologically transformed. God has actually made something new out of you. You don't just have two sinners and then one of them has forgiven above his name and one of them has judged above his name. You have someone who is not only forgiven, but they are being changed so that they're no longer sinners. When God saves you, he is making something new. He was conforming you into true righteousness, to true holiness, not just legal righteousness, not just imputed righteousness, but true holiness and righteousness. Isn't this good news? Like, I'm passionate. It sounds like I'm yelling at you, but I'm not. I'm celebrating. Isn't it amazing that God doesn't just stamp forgiveness over our heads and then walk away? But he actually makes us new creatures. He transforms us so that we are actually righteous and we actually look like him. By the way, this is not the first time we've been told this. If you'll turn over to the next slide, we learn this in Ephesians 2. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, forgiveness of sins, as great as it is, is actually a means to an end. And the means to that end is that you would actually be transformed and made like God. Not just legally, actually. When God saves us, He actually makes something new out of us. He doesn't just declare us forgiven, but we are in fact changed. And that is what it means by to put on Christ. If you'll turn over one more slide, Paul says it very similarly in Romans chapter 6. If you'll read with me, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in his death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. you see how when you put on Christ, this is not just a legal thing. You're not just forgiven. You were actually freed from the power of sin. You were actually changed to walk in newness of life. He says something similar in Galatians chapter 3. I have that on the screen for you. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You notice how in both of these texts, Paul links our putting on of Christ to our baptism? So you could really think of my message this way live in light of your baptism. Live in light of your baptism. You came to Christ, you've been transformed, you have put on Christ, you have been covenantally and spiritually united to Christ. Don't live as if that hasn't happened. And that leads us to the second and final reason we should put off the old man. Not just because it's inconsistent with who we are, but because it's inconsistent with the gospel that we have learned. Verses 20 and 21 again. But that is not the way you learned Christ assuming that you have heard of him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. We desire to live holy lives because that is how we were taught in Christ. His message and his gospel have become so precious to us that they control the entirety of our lives. Our lives should be dictated constantly by living out the gospel. And so all of this together calls us to put off the old man and to put on the new. Out with the old, and in with the new. Take off your old man and put on Christ.